Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. This today's sutta is from the Samandanga Sutta, Sutta on the Five Factors of Concentration, uh, the, the factors of concentration that we develop from jhana meditation, from right meditation. I'm going to um, read through it without a lot of commentary, but if you start getting lost in the words, just please holler, because it, it, it is a little bit, it's a little bit thick, but I think presenting it this way will have more, more of a meaning. On one occasion, the Buddha was in Savati at Jita's Grove, Anatha Pandika's monastery. He addressed those gathered. Friends, I will teach you five-factored noble concentration. Listen and pay close attention. And what is five-factored noble concentration? A follower of the Noble Eightfold Path is, is quite secluded from sensuality and other unskillful mental qualities. So that, again, is, is just referencing... Uh, initially, jhana meditation, we establish seclusion and we, um, uh, and we abandon other unskillful mental qualities one by one as they, as they arise. But we also uh, take that seclusion off of our cushion and bring it into our moment-by-moment life, framed by the Eightfold Path. They enter and remain in the first jhana, which this first jhana is experienced as rapture born of that very seclusion. So we take a breath we are joyfully engaged with the fact that we're secluded from the world, just for this moment, just for the beginning of meditation practice, the first jhana. This first jhana is accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. We're, we're directing our thought back to recognizing that we're caught up in a feeling or thought and then directing it back to our breath. Also in that first jhana, we're evaluating this. For some of us, as always, it's too hard I'm not doing it right, I can't do it for so long. All of that is part of evaluation, and it's common. The Buddha's teaching it. Don't be distracted by even that. This is expected in the first level of jhana. The joy of seclusion permeates their entire mind and body. In other words, the only thing that we're looking for in that moment is the, the rapture of that very seclusion. I said I wasn't going to talk much, but here I go. Now, the metaphor. It is as if one poured bath bath powder into a brass basin. Kneading the powder into the water, sprinkling more and more powder, forming a ball of bath powder, saturated and moisture-laden. We're imbuing ourselves with that deep concentration. It would, nevertheless, not lose a drop of its own substance. This is how a follower of the Noble Eightfold Path permeates their entire mind and body from the joy born of seclusion. So again, we're, we're taking joyful engagement in our meditation practice, but in, our, in the integration of our, the entire Eightfold Path. It's not something we're doing grudgingly or that, that we think we should do because that bald guy in Pennsylvania says we should, or an awakened human being from 2,600 years ago says we should. We're doing it because we're joyfully engaged with doing it. We understand the benefit. We've taken true refuge. This is the first development of the five-factor noble concentration joyful engagement with that very seclusion. Furthermore, as the stilling of directed thought and evaluation 
continues, they enter and remain in the second jhana. This second jhana is experienced as rapture and pleasure, now born of concentration. So again, just think about your own practice, how first you're joyfully engaged in your meditation practice, you've shut the world out, you found your quiet place and you take a breath. And you take another breath and you take a third breath. And now you're recognizing concentration is increasing. Dominic and I had a good talk about this this earlier. You're noticing your concentration increasing. Take joy in that. It should be a joyful understanding. Yes, this is working. Yes, I'm doing it right. Yes, I'm, it's bearing some, some fruit. Free of directed thought and evaluation, the joy of concentration now permeates their entire mind and body. Another metaphor. It is as if a lake with no inflow is filled with spring water, welling, welling, well, I'm sorry, welling up within. And from abundant, I'm sorry, let me start that over. It is as if a lake with no inflow is filled with spring water welling up within and from abundant showers. The cool water welling up from within the lake would permeate and fill the entire lake. This is how a follower of the Noble Eightfold Path permeates their entire mind and body from the joy born of concentration. This is the second development of the five-factor noble concentration. Remember the metaphor. Furthermore, as rapture fades, they remain equanimous, mindful, alert, sensitive to pleasure. Again, that's not, that's not grasping after pleasure. It's just sensitive to it. We're, we're mindfully aware of when pleasure occurs. They enter and remain in the third jhana, which is equanimous. It's balanced. And mindful, a pleasant abiding. So again, every one of you has experienced this third jhana. You've had a pleasant abiding in your practice. And every one of you has described that in different ways. The only reason the Buddha teaches this is so that we do recognize deepening concentration. Now we can recognize it as rapture born of this pleasant abiding. It is as if a pond is permeated with white and blue lotus born and growing immersed in the water. They flourish, permeated with cool, cool water from their root to their tip, but never standing above the surface. This is how a follower of the Noble Eightfold Path permeates their entire mind and body from the joy born of the fading of rapture. This pleasant abiding permeates their entire mind and body. This is the third development of the five-factor Noble Concentration. So we're gaining our nourishment by our practice and there's only a bit of us that's really out there, and it's that part of us that is interfacing with the world around us. Furthermore, with the abandoning of evaluation, they enter and remain in the fourth jhana, which is pure equanimity and mindful. In this case, we're not talking about the modern applications of mindful, which are too numerous to, to, to even list. It's mindfulness framed by the Eightfold Path, what I re reference as refined mindfulness. It's mindfulness, again, framed by the Eightfold Path. Being pure, neither pleasure nor pain is seen. Or in other words, for seen would be recognized. We, we're, having, we're having the experience of the entire gamut of human life. But in this moment, neither, neither pleasure nor pain is seen. Our mind is equanimous. It's balanced. It's at peace. It's liberated. It's calm. They sit in, permeated in mind and body with pure, bright awareness. And I would bet you that if you think about your meditation practice, 
Every one of you has had this experience of that pure, bright awareness. It may be so fleeting that you have to think about it a little bit to remember it, but all of you have experienced it. And the reason why I'm bringing this up and the reason why it's being taught is so that you recognize your meditation is bearing fruit. Now, it is as if one were sitting head-to-head in a white cloth, their entire body covered. This is how a follower of the Noble Eightfold Path permeates their entire mind and body. Pure, bright awareness. This is the fourth development of the five-factor noble concentration, just enveloped in this pure white cloth of understanding. Furthermore, this follower of the Noble Eightfold Path has refined mindfulness well-established. This is the fifth factor we're talking about. Their mindfulness is attended to. Their mindfulness is attended to. How do we attend to it? Through jhana meditation and integrating or learning the other seven factors of the Eightfold Path. Their mindfulness is attended to, understood, and well permeated by wise discernment. Again, uh, Dominic and I talked about this earlier. Recognizing in this moment where eye-making is occurring, recognizing the stress in that, coming back into this moment through my breath, and recognizing this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. It is as if a person, when sitting, know know another as standing, or when standing, knew another as as lying down. So this means we're able to reference other people and their differences without clinging to it. So too, this follower of the Noble Eightfold Path has refined mindfulness well-established. Their mindfulness is attended to, understood, and well permeated by wise discernment. In this moment, you hear me talk often about the Dhamma is practiced right here and right now. There's no Dhamma in the past and there can be no Dhamma in the future. Those are both fabrications. The Dhamma is meant to be practiced right here, right now, in my life, as my life unfolds, through the practice of wise restraint. In other words, I'm recognizing that eye-making may occur. As it does, I stop it. I take a breath. I recognize this is not me. This is not mine. This is not what I am. I do not want to personalize the situation because there's nothing personal about it. There can can be nothing personal about it. And I move on into the next moment in mindful equanimity. And if not, what does it mean if I'm not able to reclaim a common peaceful mind? It simply means... That's why we're engaging in Dhamma practice. We need a little bit more. And we have that refuge of our meditation practice to look forward to. We have the refuge of our Sangha to look forward to. We have the refuge of the Dhamma to establish in this moment through mindful restraint. This is the fifth development of the five-factor noble concentration. So we can talk about this later, but does anyone not recognize that they've established, nice cat, that they've established these five factors. When a follower of the Noble Eightfold Path has pursued and developed this five-factor noble concentration, they have mastered the six superior understandings. Now notice the Buddha points this out, not as something that we should now be trying to study, to recognize that we've developed it. The six superior understandings. This person thinks what they want whenever they want and does not think what is unskillful. So, as your Dhamma practice develops, notice how this increases. And notice the, the periods in your, in your life when you're able to think what you want to think when you want to think it. There's a sutta, in fact, I, just, I think I'll add it to the end of this, called the Vitaka Santana Sutta, where the Buddha con- concludes that sutta by saying, 
This wise Dharma practitioner has gained the ability to think what they want to think when they want to think. Meaning, whatever is appropriate for this moment is what will naturally flow from my thoughts. Excuse me. Because my thoughts are rooted in concentration and framed by the Eightfold Path. It's always appropriate. This person thinks what they want whenever they want and does not think what is unskillful. There's no eye-making in this moment. Then, through appropriate mindfulness, they understand the suffering of many from understanding their own suffering. They understand the arising and the passing away of the aggregates. Again, Dominic and I had a, had a very nice talk about this earlier. If you want to talk about this, Dominic, please do so, but you don't have to. I'm not trying to make you. But that is another of the six superior understandings. From lack of clinging, they are spacious, free, unbounded, unimpeded. Their form has no boundaries and no self-distinction. This occurs to a practitioner whenever they are mindful and well-concentrated. Again, this is not something we grasp after or try to artificially manufacture in our lives. It's a natural consequence of Dhamma practice. It's a superior understanding that is developed through authentic Dhamma practice. Their consciousness unbound. Wait, I'm just, I'm missing my. Their consciousness is unbound. I lost my spot. They are restrained. Sounds are unfettered and unsurpassed. How could it sounds are un, this, this was one that kind of puzzled me for a while when I first read it. Sounds are unfettered and unsurpassed. Why would the Buddha and the Buddha never wasted a word or a sentence in a sutta? But why is he making that point that sounds are, are unfettered and unsurpassed? It's be, he's pointing out to when we are free of all eye making. When this moment is again just to coin a phrase. This is the first moment of the rest of my life. You all heard it. Then the sound that I'm hearing is unfettered by eye making. It is pure. And because it's pure, it's unsurpassed in this moment. And I, just to relate something, I said I wasn't going to get too deep into it. Um, when I was younger, I used to listen to a lot of music like most kids. And as I got older, and even as I started practicing the Dhamma, I didn't listen so much to music anymore. And recently, I just got this notion of, and because of YouTube videos, I remembered, um, what was the first song that got me going? Oh, Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen. One of my, I just, I heard Leonard Cohen, if you know that song, it's one of the great rock songs. I heard Leonard Cohen sing that song when I was 16 years old in the Village Vanguard in front of about six people. He was four years older than me, and he sounded and looked just like he does today. Anyway, that got me going down this nostalgic trail a tale, trail of listening to these old songs. And, you know, the YouTube video, one led to a next based on my uh, preference. And it was really a powerful experience because I was listening to songs that I never thought were much when I was a kid, but hearing much more nuance in the songs that I used to listen to with, you know, headphones and really intense, but I just was not hearing the music purely as kind of as it was intended. And it was a completely different experience I ever had. Um, 
And not to get too deep into it, but every now and then I'll listen to, or I'll remember an old song will pop into my head. And I'll call it up on YouTube. And again, I'll have this completely new experience that, that I, I've ever had before. So much so that right now I think that Asleep at the Wheel is the most fantastic band of all time. Anybody that knows knows that's kind of a ridiculous thought. They're, they're a backup country band, but some of their instrumentals and their vocals are so beautiful that it, it, it's remarkable now. Okay, that's enough. This occurs to a practitioner whenever they are mindful and well-concentrated. Whenever they're... So in this moment, if I am mindful and well-concentrated, even sounds sounds that, I, that were common and ordinary are now unsurpassed. Why? Because I'm here for them. I'm listening to them. They're invigorating my life in this moment because I don't need them to be any different or louder or softer or a different melody or a different harmony. It's just what is being presented. And that's the way of... That, that is a, an, um, an experience of engaging in the har- harmony of our own life. And again, think about the metaphor and, and how we are using the Dhamma to harmonize our own thoughts with reality. We, we can think what we want whenever we want because those thoughts are appropriate to what's occurring. When appropriate, mindful, and well-concentrated, they understand the mindfulness and concentration of others. Again, Dominic and I had a little talk about that. Through understanding our own thought process, we are able to understand others. We're able to understand others' suffering because of this. It was in, in much of modern Buddhism, uh, clairvoyance is, is a uh, supernatural quality that was given to Siddhartha Gautama. He never claimed to be clairvoyant. But it, it often seems like that when you read some of the suttas. But it's only because he was so mindfully present with others that he understood them. So he could, he could uh, come across uh, Angela Miller, the murderer, and within a few sentences, know the, the quality of mind that Angela Miller was carrying, a, a mind of a murderer, and because of that, completely turn it around with a few important and choice words. We are able to do that. And again, Dominic, if you'd like to talk about that, please do so. I'm not asking you that you have to. And then the Buddha says, they know, mind, they know a mind with passion as a mind with passion. We're able to see a mind that is reacting with eye-making. And isn't it interesting that, we, that, this, that societies tend to follow the people with the loudest and most persistent voice? Now we understand that those are minds filled with passion, and we should take a little bit of caution when following them. They know a mind without passion as a mind without passion. We can recognize a calm and peaceful mind, somebody who we might want to listen to. They know a mind of aversion as a mind of aversion. They know a mind free of aversion as a mind free of aversion. How do we know that? Now I'm not talking about other people's minds. We know our own mind free of aversion. And so in this moment, each and every one of you knows what I'm talking about because now you know the experience of aversion and you know the the experience of passion. I want more of this. I want less of this. And you know that they're both fabricated. They're both rooted in eye-making. They know a deluded mind as a deluded mind. They know a mind free of delusion as a mind free of delusion. How do we know these things? Through direct experience. Anybody can, can, I can ask you to describe delusion and you can describe it. We all know it. This is not what we're talking about. We're talking about having a direct experience of a mind free of delusion and 
because of our ignorance of Four Noble Truths, we know a mind that is rooted in aversion. I don't want this. I don't want this experience. Or I'm not good enough for this moment. That's an aspect of aversion, by the way. They know a restricted mind as a restricted mind. They know a mind free of restriction as a mind free of restriction. Ultimately, a mind free of restriction is a mind that is disentangled with all worldly events. They know a spacious mind as a spacious mind. They know a constricted mind as a constricted mind. They know a refined mind as a refined mind. You know the development of your own refined mindfulness because we know an unrefined mind as an unrefined mind. We, re, we know the quality of our mind before we've taken up Dharma practice, and we know that it's unrefined. How do we know it's unrefined? Because it's, le- it's led to a lifetime of stress for ourselves and others. They know a concentrated mind as a concentrated mind. They know a distracted mind as a distracted mind. Again, the Buddha is pointing out things that are important to recognize because they contribute to our ongoing Dhamma practice. We recognize the benefits of it. They know a mind released from ignorance as a mind released from ignorance. They know a mind clinging to ignorance as a mind clinging to ignorance through our own direct experience. They know for themselves a well-concentrated mind supporting refined mindfulness. You know it for yourself. They know the arising and the passing away of bodies within the continuation of endless samsara. The arising and passing away of bodies. What is the Buddha referring to? He's, he's talking to the, looking out on the world and seeing life arising and passing away in millions and millions of people. And nothing ta- changes. The continuation of endless samsara. So we have a human history. It's written down in all of our books. The reason why I'm saying it is we don't have to look into the fabrication of past lives to know that we've been doing this for millions of years. We can just read a history book. And as I said, I think I started this class with, in my lifetime, there hasn't been one day where there hasn't been a war, where, where organized people were clashing with other organized people with the intent to kill them. Not one day in my 66 years. And I would hazard to say, not in human history have we had one day where people weren't warring with each other at least once. The continuation of endless samsara. The Buddha said these words 2,600 years ago. And he could say them today, couldn't he? But he could have said it two months ago when, it, when one man didn't invade another country. So it's not just because of this current condition. It's, it's much more pronounced and it's much more obvious. But this, these conditions that lead to people warring with each other has been going on forever and it's rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. The most loving thing I can do for myself and for all other sentient beings. If I really give a rat's behind about people, and most human beings would say they do, it's to take to the Dhamma and awaken. If I really care about you, I have to care about myself first. And doesn't that make sense? Siddhartha Gautama, who referred to himself as an unawakened bodhisattva, meaning a human being imbued with great compassion for other human beings, but in an unawakened state, state, state didn't do anything. And I'm not saying he didn't, he didn't help other people in a practical way, but he didn't set out to teach anybody anything until he knew what the hell he was talking about. Our world would do well if we had people like that, that applied what they were teaching to themselves first, saw that it worked, and then taught others, rather than seeing rage-filled people leading the world and leading our woke society. 
it really is it's astonishing to me to see how far we've gotten we've gotten to praising the loudest voice and the angriest voice instead of recognizing, wait a minute, this is not something I want to follow. This is not me. This is not mine. I'm going to read it again. They know the arising and the passing away of bodies within the continuation of endless samsara. Who's continuing it? It's the ones that are saying, don't, 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 don't. It's all bad. You're all awful. People are awful. These certain people are scum. They shouldn't live in the world. That's the same thing we do to ourselves, isn't it? And when we stop doing it to ourselves, then we might be able to stop doing it with others. But we're not going to be doing, we're not going to be able to do it out of sheer intellect. Because guess what, folks? We've thought ourselves into a probably going to be another world war. Thinking doesn't help us. Thinking rooted in ignorance just keeps recreating endless samsara, as the Buddha said. If we want to end it, and everyone here, in fact, I would say everyone here is involved in one way or another in trying to bring the, trying to raise the consciousness of our our society. Just using that as a as a phrase, I don't I don't really believe in raising consciousness. We all care about that, and now we can do something about it because we're doing it to ourselves first. They understand their associations to people and the circumstances of wandering in ignorance. I'll give a good example of this. I know I said I was going to try to get through this without. Um, I grew up in the Vietnam War, and so I, was, I listened to what at that time was common to today. A lot of the, the loudest voices um, were the voices that really shouldn't have been followed, but we all did. You know, we, we all were misled. I can see Jeff grew up the same time. He knows what, what happened there. And the world knows. We've all gotten different versions of that awful war. Uh, and I'm not talking about who's right and who's wrong. But uh, at the age of 15, and I was greatly caught up in the anti-war movement. All my friends were, and there was a lot of rhetoric, and I had a great association with all these wonderful people. And so I decided to go in. There was a, an anti-war march going from people that know New York City. The end of Fifth Avenue, one of the major streets, ends at Washington Square, and it's where a lot of these things would take place because it's in a, near NYU, you know, a, a liberal center. And so this, this huge anti-war rally starting at Washington Square Park going up Fifth Avenue. And we started the march. We're all excited and everybody's screaming. And I happened to be walking next to two people in uniform, in a military uniform. Now, I didn't even think about that at the time, but the guts that it took those people to stand in uniform and protest the war that they were fighting just a few weeks before. And as I'm walking up Fifth Avenue, some person came, ran out of the sidewalk Next to these two pieces of people standing in front of me, people that, that fought to protect me and spit in their face. It so stunned me, I, and I just stood there. I said, I couldn't believe it. And I didn't know what to do. The only thing I could do is to walk away from it. And it took me a while to come to grips with realizing that I was contributing to hate in that moment. I wasn't protesting anything. And this is just my own experience. I'm not saying that if you feel like you want to protest something, go ahead and do it. But it caused me to look long and hard at what the hell I was doing. And even though I didn't understand hate, I understand that I was involved in it. And I never, ever did anything like that again. And to this day, I'm glad that I didn't because I've been, I have a lot of associations and people taking up arms and, and or not taking up protests all the time. Uh, about 10 or 15 years ago, there was this, this, um, uh, this, eh, 
It had to do with Wall Street, boycott Wall Street, Wall Street movement. And even my neighbor says, I'm going down. I'm going to go protest this. And I said, no, no, thank you. And he sent me a text holding his little baby in a, in a crowd of protest Wall Street. It was, it, wasn't, it was something else. And he took a selfie of himself with his little kid. And his kid is screaming, involved in this. And I didn't, I didn't even respond to it. I think, well, why would you even bring a kid into something full of this anger and this hatred? It never resolves anything. And even after this great protest, guess what? Wall Street is still Wall Street. People are still angry. We're still all fighting wars. There's people in this country that are still fighting the Vietnam War. And I found a way to remain calm and peaceful, despite how I'm saying this right now. I'm just using that as an example that even someone as brilliant as me can get caught up and think that what they're doing is right when really all that I was doing was, was expressing my own hatred. And it was, it was an unfounded hatred. I didn't even know who I hated. But because of my associations, I decided, yep, I must hate something or somebody. And it literally tore me apart, and it had me witness what happened next to me. It's, I still think about it. I'm still talking about it. It's one of the most disgusting things I've ever seen in my life. Anyway, um, they understand their associations to people and a circumstance of wandering and ignorance. And that's what I was trying to describe in that little story. They know karma and they know rebirth. In that moment, I didn't understand this until I understood karma and rebirth, I was contributing to another moment of my own rooted in ignorance. I was increasing or continuing my karma and giving birth to another moment in ignorance by my own participation. It is by understanding it now that I was able to gain some benefit from it and able to use maybe hopefully a, a useful uh, example. But that's it. In fact, when I think, and I'm thinking about it now, I can still feel the hatred that I, that I carried with me to New York that day. And I thought I was doing something grand, something great. I was going to save the world. And all that I did was give validity to people spitting in another person's face. At least that's how I saw it. They know karma and they know we Can I ask a question, John? Yes, please. Um, what about people in... I, I understand when protests are led by sort of anger and um, aggression but what about some of the um, you know well-known protest movements of, of our time or previous times yep. which have been led you know I, I guess the most famous example would be Gandhi I'm thinking of that um, too what about people that, that, that led with a sort of a peaceful uh, at least to my limited understanding a, a sort of a peaceful um, approach so they didn't they wanted change, and they yep. and they wanted to see change, but they didn't do it with hatred in their hearts. You bring up Gandhi is a perfect example of this because he didn't try to get people in protest. When you we think of Gandhi, you know what did he do? He sat down on the beach where they were harvesting sand and kept his mouth shut. If you can do that, that's great. That was his protest. We haven't and everybody, and I'm not talking about you, Tom. We all fall back on. Well, Gandhi did it, so let's do it while we're bashing people's heads in or spitting in people's faces. We're not, we're not looking at the example clearly. If you can do that, you know, um, also during my time, they had these things called sit-ins. You know, we, often at universities, we'd sit in in the library, we'd, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people protesting something. And I'll qualify that by saying if you can do that and sit quietly, okay, 
But there's always, and I haven't seen one yet, that a, a protest is just that. It's against something. What is that? It's an aversion. What is the best way? So we, we can all protest poverty. You know, we can take up arms against poverty or we can deal with it directly in our communities where we can actually have a, have a difference. And again, that, that, that's just one example. If we, are, uh, if we don't like where our governments are going, we can certainly organize, but I would say let's organize within the framework of the Eightfold Path and not protest something, but promote something. How about promoting a common peaceful mind as a political platform? Rather than I'm against, you know, I'm against know, whatever you want. I'm against racism, so you got to vote for me. You know, to me, that's just, that's a, that would, every, half, half of the people in our country are, are running on racism. To me, that's the most ridiculous thing to run on. There isn't any. You people might argue me, and I don't want to get into that argument right now. There isn't any. It's in our minds. Where else could it be? Uh-oh, I just got Mateo upset. I hope not. It, it, it's a difficult question to answer, Tom, but I would answer it this way. I doubt you would ever find me in a protest march or a protest sitting, because to me, it has it, it, it's framed by aversion. But what I do is live within the framework of the Eightfold Path, and I know that I'm no longer contributing to any stress and suffering in the world, including taking up a, a, an organized march against something. So if, you, if I could find one that I knew was... Um, I'll give you an example. In a couple of weekends, our sangha here is going to do a cleanup of the Delaware River. You know, a group of us are going to go. The river runs, that's Cross River Meditation Center. It runs right behind our building. It's not a protest to me. It's not a protest against littering. And I know the group. We're really just getting together and having fun on, you know, with something directed. But that's all it is. We're not, t- when I'm, I'm not against, you know, littering. I'm not for it. I don't, I don't think about it. But I'm going to go engage in a cleanup. I'm going to spend a few hours of my my life enjoying myself. I won't be walking along the Delaware, but I'll be there. Um, so I don't know if I've answered your question, Tom, but I, I understand where it's coming from because as a society, we feel self-empowered by what we're against. I'm for this, I'm against that, and we create an identity about it. Well, going back to my story about the Vietnam War, I didn't. I no longer wanted to be a Vietnam War protester. But it didn't mean I was for war. Of course I wasn't. Do you understand what I'm saying? Does it does it have any meaning to you? And it doesn't have to, Tom. I'm not trying to convince you of, of this. Yeah, I think it's it's for me it just comes back to framing your decisions by the eightfold path. If you can find a way to um you know uh, stand up for a cause in a way which is yeah, in alignment with the with the eightfold path, yeah. then you can do it skillfully, right? And but yes. if you notice aversion is arising as you do it, then obviously you're doing it wrong. Yes, so, in, in yourself yeah. or others. Yeah, and it's not really yeah. that you're. I mean, you're, not that you're doing it wrong. It's not something skillful. It's not something you should be involved with. With as a Dharma practitioner, because I mean, I know you've heard it said by me. To end conflict in the world, I first have to end conflict in my mind. So if I'm going into something with a conflicted mind or encouraging others' conflicted mind, what am I doing? I'm literally hating in that moment. 
I'm either hating an object, you know, an idea, or I'm hating a, a person or a group of people. Right now, if you saw somebody holding up a sign saying Putin should die, you'd agree with it, wouldn't you? Well, I wouldn't. You know, I'm not saying you would, Tom. Most people would say, yeah, he should die. When I think about Putin, I think about someone who is an incredibly stuck in an incredible level of suffering. It doesn't mean that I approve of it, but I can have that, 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 that human experience of understanding how far delusion could take another human being, and I understand it. Because there were times in my life where I was so angry, I probably could have killed someone. Years and years ago, when, when I, I used to shoot guns, you know, I, I would not, I was, I, 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 would, I liked firearms for their technology, so I enjoyed it. I used to go to a firing. But I never bought a gun when I was younger, when I was drinking and drugging, because I didn't trust myself, honestly. I thought I might use it on someone, so I never did. Now I don't really care to own a gun or not. But the, 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 the point I'm trying to make is, if I'm against something, I'm against myself, because there's eye-making in that. If I can do something free of any eye-making, and know that the people I'm associating with or encouraging are also free of eye-making, that's wonderful. But if by my presence, I'm encouraging someone to lose their mind, I, honestly, I can't do it as a, as a matter of maintaining the Eightfold Path. That's wrong association with me. And so I'm very careful. It's one of the reasons why I teach the Dhamma in the same way. I don't associate the Dhamma with any other kind of altruistic idea. It might make it a little bit more flowery and more um, uh, uh, agreeable to certain people, but it's not the Dhamma. It would only lead to conflict, wouldn't it? So it's a really tough question, and it kind of goes against what most of the people that look seek out Buddhism think is so important. The most the, the major form of Buddhism today is called engaged Buddhism, and it has no Buddhism at all, or very little Buddhism attached to it. The leader of that movement got his understanding during the Vietnam War when bombs were dropping around him. And it, and it created a PT, I, I can see when I heard, hear, listened to the man talk and I saw him speak, so I'm not putting him down, I'm not, I won't identify him, those of you probably know who I'm talking about. Um, his whole life was revolving around two things, a, a misapplied form of Buddhism wrapped in an anti-war movement. And so th th that, that tinged everything that, that this man taught. And he taught it, he wrote probably his most read person probably in modern Buddhism. And he got everybody engaged in Buddhism in different ways. Where I, my Buddhist practice is engaged against poverty. My Buddhist practice, I'm, I'm engaged against sexism. I'm engaged against racism. Well, what is your practice then? It's anti-something. It has nothing to do with developing a common peaceful mind, does it? Although many people think that in order for me to develop a common peaceful mind, I must force it on everybody else. For me to be common peaceful, you must be. Doesn't work that way, does it? It can't. The only way that I can instill calm in the world in any way that I have control over is to instill it in myself. And if I don't do it in myself first, what does that tell me? What does it tell what should it tell me? If I'm more worried about saving the world than saving my own ass, what does it tell me? 
It tells me I hate myself. That's self-loathing. And it's a great excuse to not look at myself. It's a great excuse to not wake up and to, and to be engaged in, in being against racism, which, by the way, doesn't exist. Systemic racism I'm talking about. I'm not talking about individual. There's always be people that hate each other, whether it's their color, or the, you know, their, their height, their Dhamma practice, or whatever it is, you know, their country. We don't, we don't have to fabricate and create systems about these kind of things. They're inherent. But I would bet there's very few, just talking about this and to make the point, I would bet there's very few people that you know that are actual racists, that hate people because of the color of their skin. But we all can look out in the world and say, yeah, there's racism. Of course there is. But we're never going to get past it until we just start, stop looking at people as they're in their differences. We've created a situation in the world being anti-something where we've exaggerated everything. Instead of, instead of the diminishing of eye-making, we're exaggerating it. And we're doing it a lot of times, Tom, through protest, through the identity that we've created, through this engagement. Rather than, let's take to the Dhamma, let's do this first. Let's develop a common, peaceful mind. Let's understand the nature of my inner conflict abandon that, and then let me see what I can do for the world. And I, the only thing I can say about that is, from my own experience, I know that is the most effective thing that I can do. And how do I know it? Because I know that I'm not, for the first time in my life, you know, rather long life, I'm not creating conflict in other people's minds by me saying this or saying that. I might be creating a, a little conflict in people's minds that listen to me because they want me to be different, they want me to say, and I've had people say, you can't be a Buddhist because you don't hate, meaning you're not against something. And I say, okay, you know, I'm, I guess I'm not a Buddhist. But I'm not willing to hate just to be a Buddhist. You know, it's taken me, uh, you know, let me put it, it's taken me 50 years of hard living to get rid of hate. I'm not going to pick it up again just because it looks good, you know, just because all my friends are doing or some of my friends or people that I want to associate with. Or, you know, the, the girl that I want to date thinks this way. You know, or not to be sexual. You got to be, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't care about it. I got to say, you can't, you can't look at it. You can't identify yourself as it only appealing to one sex anymore. But, you know, to, to me, that's all craziness. It really is. I understand the movement. I understand that people in certain categories feel oppressed at times. But there's so many people in all the categories that we say are oppressed that never saw themselves as oppressed and had wonderful lives and made great presence in the world. In every category that we can imagine. I've known many of them. So, um, again, excuse the long exposition, Tom, but it was, um, I guess you could say it was something that I wanted to talk about, and I'm glad you brought it up. <laughs> that, do you find it helpful, though? And again, you don't have to agree with me, Tom. It's okay to, to argue with me. Uh, yeah. yeah, I do. I um... Yeah, a lot, a lot to unpack there, but um, yeah, we can continue the discussion after. But yeah, thank you. Yeah, it, it, it's an important subject we should all be aware of, but it, it boils down to let's end conflict in our minds first. The Buddha continues. Their consciousness unbound. Uh, I just read that already, sorry. I'll start. They understand the suffering of others rooted in bad conduct arising from wrong views. Right speech, right action, right livelihood. 
They understand those bound to wrong views are also bound to continued suffering. So again, it relates to what we just talked about. They're also bound to continue suffering, bound to it. Who would want, who would say, well, I want more suffering? It doesn't necessarily mean you want it, but by your craving and clinging, you're bound to it. You're tethered to it. Furthermore, their icon, I'm sorry, I missed the whole point here. I'm going to go back and read this quickly just because I missed the point. Their eye consciousness unbound, restrained, they see clearly the continuation of others bound to endless samsara according to their karma. They understand the suffering of others rooted in bad conduct arising from wrong views. They understand those bound to wrong views are also bound to continuing suffering. What I left out there, because I don't see so well, is their eye consciousness. The Buddha attributed consciousness to each of our five senses. Senses, meaning eye consciousness feeds, con- feeds my mind through what comes in through my eyes. Nose consciousness feeds my consciousness through what I smell. Ear consciousness through what I hear. Tactile consciousness through what I'm touching, etc. Just to, just to understand this. Furthermore, their eye consciousness now unbound, restrained. Now notice unbound, but restrained. Unbound and restrained can exist in the same sentence, doesn't it? I'm unbound from wrong views, and I'm restrained in my mindfulness. I'm restrained by the Eightfold Path. They see clearly the arising and the passing away of others, bound to endless samsara according to their karma, according to what they're making for themselves in this moment. They understand the release of others, rooted in good conduct arising from right views. We can see it in others. I see it all the time. I see it in each and every one of you. They understand those released from wrong views are also released from continued suffering. How do we release ourselves from from continued suffering? We release ourselves from our wrong views. And how do we recognize our wrong views? Through the Eightfold Path. Not through looking out in the world and getting affirmations for our own wrong views by our associations. We do it through, through Vipassana, through careful introspective insight into the three marks of existence. The impermanence of all things, the misunderstanding of self, and the resulting deluded thinking. I mean, this is my comment, but I'm just going to read it in here. The Buddha described the wake and right, right view as having a profound and penetrative understanding of suffering relating directly to four noble truths. Again, knowledge with regards to stress, the first noble truth. Knowledge with regards to the origination of stress. Knowledge with regards to the cessation of stress, a direct experience of that. And knowledge with regards to the way of practice, the Eightfold Path, leading to the cessation of stress. Then the Buddha says, thus, from establishing this five-factor concentration, they enter or remain in the defilements of greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. They are mindful of their release through direct experience right here and right now. This is not a practice where we're hoping to get something in the future because of how wonderful I am right now, getting a reward for my Dhamma practice. We recognize it right here and right now. We recognize and abandon greed, aversion, and deluded thinking right here and right now. And how do we do it? Just like we're talking here. In this moment. As eye-making is arising, as stress is arising, as a troubling view or a troubling thought is arising, I take a breath and remind myself, this is rooted in greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. This is not me. This is not mine. This is not what I am. Excuse me.
They are mindful of their release through direct experience right here and now. They know this for themselves due to a well-concentrated mind supporting refined mindfulness. This is what the Buddha said, gratified. Those assembled were delighted at his words. That's the end of today's sutta. Um, so again, just to um, synopsize this again and going back over our jhana uh, structured study, I think this is 32 or 33 class, 33rd class, um, all of what the Buddha is teaching, all of what we're hoping to develop is founded in this right meditation practice that has one purpose for deepening concentration so that we can then recognize the integration and the um, development of the Eightfold Path as the Buddha describes here. We recognize the deepening levels of jhana through our meditation practice, and then we notice their practical application, that we're staying out of the fray of human life, or we recognize that we're caught up in, in our entanglements of the world. We recognize it, take a breath, and abandon it. And what do we do, what's the most important thing to do when we find ourselves caught up and entangled in the world? Anybody. The first thing we do when we find ourselves entangled in the world is find a good, hard wall, preferably made out of brick, and bang your head against it. Just kidding. Take a breath and recognize... That, that, that was a direct, or direct but also metaphor for what we do when we don't practice the Dhamma in that moment. We're banging our heads against the, the, the wall. We've been banging it against all this time. We're creating that stress. We're creating further headaches for ourselves by simply not recognizing in this moment, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. And if any moment is framed by less than a conflict-free mind, you know it, and you know what to do. And again, the first thing you do is not bang your head against the wall, not judge yourself harshly, not fall into deeper self-loathing. Simply recognize that in this moment, this is what's arising. And if it's distressed in any way, diseased in any way, you simply take a breath and let it go. Because what's left is what is the sixth property person. It's what we always are. That momentary acknowledgement of a common peaceful me is the experience of the real me, a real human being. Because how else could a fully mature human being have any stress in this moment? Save for the stress of looking out in the world and having an appropriate thought. We know we have the, the right thought at the appropriate time. We know what to think when we think it. So when we see a crazy man dropping bombs on other people, we don't approve of it. We understand the stress and suffering that that man is under, and we also understand the stress and suffering of all the others, and we understand the stress and suffering of the continuation of samsara. This is a, a plane of existence that, according to a Buddha, is prone to stress and suffering. It's not uncommon. A, a global utopia is uncommon. It contradicts what the Buddha taught. Maybe we'll have it one day. I don't know. That, that's not what I'm after. But it's not what we have here and now. It's not the reality of this human life in 2022. What's occurring in the world right now? Am I involved in it? Am I entangled in it? Do I need anything to be different? Beginning with myself? Or am I at peace with the six property person right here and right now? And again... Our minds tend to go back and forth. 
And it might be, well, what about tomorrow? Don't I need to be a little better tomorrow than I am today? When you have that thought, recognize that's not me. That's not mine. That's not what I am. And it should be clear because the me that I am tomorrow or the next moment is not the me I am now, is it? And so it's pure speculation. I'm not talking about I'm going to eat good so I don't have a heart attack tomorrow. That's, that's, that's ridiculous to go that far with this thinking. It's taking it too far. Shouldn't I take care of myself? The Buddha teaches every human being needs four things, food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. It's beyond that that we get caught up and I need more food, I need the best clothes, I need the absolute best medicine, and I need the biggest house. That's where we get stuck. But when I recognize, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. I am complete and whole as I find myself in this moment. Peace prevails. So Dominic, I called on you a few times already today, and I'm not asking you to talk about anything that you don't want to talk about, but... (laughs) It's good to see you this today. So what do you have to say, Dominic? I think you're muted. Can't hear you. Ah. Yeah, you're, you're not muted on my end. Can you hear me now? There you are. Okay. <laughs> so, I don't know, Mateo, you probably didn't hear me. I said, Buona sera, come stai? Ah. <laughs> I wish I could say that. <laughs> Just to return the favor. <laughs> See how you're making me look bad? Yeah, well, you know... Us Europeans try to uh, yeah. <laughs> teach other cultures. We're not like Americans. That's what I heard. I heard you all like that. <laughs> no, I, I, I had a aunt in uh, who lived in Italy when I was young, but unfortunately she died when uh, I was right. ten or eleven years old. So I didn't learn much, but I did learn some stuff. So I can still count to ten. <laughs> and I can say Vafankula. <laughs> oh yeah, well, I had I had Italian grandparents, and, and that's that's yeah, something I'm, my grandfather I'm, I'm used not to say. Translate that, but yeah, yeah. I think that's so, the, that's uh, the rudest thing that's ever been said in the Dharma class. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. Yeah, <laughs> but we we won't take it personal. Yeah, don't. Uh, where to start, John? Um, Wherever you want. <laughs> You mentioned Leonard Cohen and Hallelujah. Uh, well, I'm not his biggest fan by any means. I like the guy, but, you know, just... But Hallelujah is one of the most... Uh, how should I say this? Misunderstood songs that I've ever yeah. come across. To. Yeah, it's got nothing to do with God. And, and whenever, I, especially Americans are very good with that because Americans when they hear hallelujah they go crazy you know and when you hear an interpretation of hallelujah and they have this angel choir they're singing hallelujah you know and I'm thinking do you even know what the guy is singing you know I don't think anybody when when he says like uh, she she ties him to a chair and she throws throws uh, yeah it's all it's all about sex it's about sex, yeah. right? It's about his hallelujah means I found it. That's what his song. Yeah. 
Fuck yeah, so it's about <coughs> orgasm and everybody wants hallelujah. Yeah. <laughs> they think because of that one word, it's a religion. I, I've heard it play, played in Catholic schools. Word for word. And they don't get it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's funny, but yeah, every time I hear that song, I just remember about that, you know, the choir singing and dressed like angels. Yeah, I, I still think it's one of the greatest you know. songs. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, the second uh, thing is, uh, you know, Mahatma Gandhi. We could talk about Mahatma Gandhi all day long, but uh, I read a lot about him, and the thing I found most confusing is that he was actually accused by his sons, his family, that he's a Buddhist. That was an accusation. Yeah, that was, because he was supposed to be a Hindu. Yeah, he should be punished because he's a Hindu. Yeah, yeah well, Gandhi was an enlightened man, so he said, well, being compared to Buddha is yeah. <laughs> it's great, you know, it's nothing wrong with it. But I was really, uh, yeah... I didn't know that uh, Hinduists hate Buddhists so much <laughs> until I read a book, uh, book about uh, Gandhi. Yeah, well... Uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, that's it. The, the, the third thing, uh, you know, when you're talking about that people don't understand uh, that uh, being a Buddhist doesn't mean to be uh, anti-anything. Yeah. So you have to be against that. You know, I remember a long time ago I read uh, there was this uh, study uh, on LSD effects the Americans were doing in Japan. Mm -hmm. And they were comparing it to the states of a deep meditative states from the Zen monks. Yeah. And they uh, found out that basically the LSD does put you in a state which is a lot like deep concentration, deep uh, meditation. And they went all happily to the monk, you know, to the, to the head monk and said, why, why, why do you need to meditate when you can just take LSD and it's going to be the same? And the monk just smiled and said, uh, the path is important, not the yeah, goal. That's right, that's right. You know, yeah. I thought about that. And then he also mentioned, because they uh, argued that uh, Buddhist uh they don't do much for society because they are secluded. They don't, you know, like he said, protest. And he again just smiled. He said something like, um, you know, I'm not sick, but my mind is not well. So in order to help the world, I need to be well first. Yeah. So I need to heal myself. Yeah. When I heal myself, then I can help others to heal. You know, it's so... I found that, uh, you know, quite similar to the early teachings of the Buddhist. Yeah. Uh, they were Zen monks, but still, you know, they said some good stuff. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I agree. I had, I had one of my all-time best friends was, a, he's dead now, was a uh, leading, you know, world-renowned um, Zen teacher. I still think he's one of the greatest about, guys I've ever met, you know. Yeah, yeah. And the thing you said about, you know, when protests are actually uh, being violent. I also remembered, you know, the, I read from Stephen Batchelor, I think, when he was training for a monk in Tibet. And one day the Dalai Lama came to give a speech. 
and those big clouds were gathering and the storm was coming and there was this one monk, uh, Lama, who was banging the drums and uh, basically asking the gods of rain not to do their job, you know? Yeah. Uh, so don't rain, Dalai Lama is here, you know, stop, stop with the rain. And I remember that uh, he wrote that later that evening, one monk came to, to him, to Stephen, and said, that wasn't good what he did. And Stephen didn't understand it. He said, why? But because that's... Um, because that's... Uh, <laughs> now I've lost my, my word. Um, so that, that, was, that was violence. Yeah, it is. It's again, especially the people that are trying to grow tomatoes in their backyard. You know, that needed to eat. Yeah. So again, it, it's, yeah, it, but... it's a good example of someone who's just not thinking through what they're doing. Yeah, no, so, but these were high priests, you know, high monks. And when you think about it, it's really, they're just asking something that is quite normal and spontaneous and yeah. you can't, can't take control of the weather. And they're trying these rituals to prevent it. And it, it's, it's violence. So, I do understand, you know, I, I really appreciate the Buddha not not being violent in any way. Okay. And to some people it might sound strange, you know, you know but you have to do something. Uh, yeah, I agree, you have to do something, but as you said, start with yourself, you know. Like, yeah. Just like, I don't know, Michael Jackson sang the man in the mirror. So, <laughs> you're the first one that needs to to change and... Uh, don't protest, don't, don't, don't be violent because it's not going to change anything. Yeah. And th th thank you so but much. I think it's a very, it's a very thin line between what you can do and without being violent, you know? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> it is, <coughs> it, it's a fine line and it's also a wide chasm as you develop concentration, then you can stay out of it, but even as Tom was saying, that, that line, um, especially in the beginning, can be easily crossed. Because, like I said, most human beings, unless you're truly psychotic, and you've heard me say true psychosis is very rare, um, but unless you're truly psychotic, you naturally care about other human beings. But look what we do with that care. We take that care because of association and take that too far and then make it against someone else who might be against the people that I happen to care about, whatever that group of people is. And it never ends. And again, instead of ending conflict in my mind, and then maybe I can serve both camps, you know, which is really what the Buddha did during his time. He, he served both camps. When, when people were going to war, he didn't, he, he counseled the, the stronger to take care of the weaker when you win. He didn't say, no, 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 you can't ever kill anything, you know. He said, when you win, make sure you take care of those that you're victory over, victor over. Thank you, Dominic. We'll talk in a little bit. Hello, Jeff. Hi, John. Hi, guys. Um, we, you already covered a lot of ground here. Um, <laughs> Dominic, the song... Uh, in the arms of an angel uh, yeah. enjoyed a lot of popularity here in the U.S. for a while yeah. and it was widely played in, in religious settings yeah. 
uh, until someone discovered that it was really about heroin addiction yeah. <laughs> and that they were actually promoting that. So, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of things we get caught up. Uh, music is a very emotional thing. Yeah. Music is really the sound of our emotions. Yeah. And people get carried away in their emotions without really realizing what what the actual expression is. Um, so, John, I've, I've got a question. Please. You know, you, you're... Um, you're, I, I think I understand what you're trying to get at when you say there's racism doesn't exist. But that statement, on the face of it, sounds opposition. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you've got someone who has framed that in their mind as something they hold as a value or a truth or a, a reality... Um, what your what that statement sounds like to me is I'm opposed to you. I, I think that's what people hear is opposed oh, yeah. to. And I'm I'm wondering if there isn't a better way to frame that argument, perhaps in uh, going directly. Actually, it would be indirectly on that subject to the the mechanism in, that's occurring in their own consciousness. Yes, that that means that they have to stand for this thing in opposition to that thing. Yes, thank you for bringing it up. In in this in this context, I I, I think I was doing that. I hope I was doing that. I, I, that's not a statement I would make. Um, maybe not even sitting at a, at a, you know, at, at having dinner just because I, I think other people would find it offensive. Um, but in this context, that's just what I'm talking about. Racism only exists in the mind that's holding onto racism, whatever it is. And my question, my, my comment um, that systemic racism doesn't exist means just that. There's no system, at least that I'm aware of, I'm more aware of my country than others, but that I know of that exists to to actually keep certain people in a certain class that there's racist people in our country and all over the world they do but it, it exists only in their minds in reality it's not there in order for one person to hate another person because of the colors of their skin had to do, had to make a determination rooted in complete ignorance that people do that exists but it's a fabrication. So in this context, it, 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 that, that's what I'm referring to. So, the systemic, John, the systemic part, the, the, the argument made on that is that there are, on, on, in some, especially more in local jurisdictions, there are still existing kinds of things that are hangovers from when racism was legally installed. Yeah. And... Uh, Again, I, I don't know that even saying it systemic doesn't exist. It, 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 it is a reality. What people perceive is their reality. This is where I'll argue with you, Jeff, because I think using the word systemic is itself an oppressive way of saying it. Because that's to me, that's telling other people that don't look like me that you're screwed before the get-go. And I'll tell you why I, why I feel that way. And again, life experience. When I was just starting out in the roofing business, I was 23, 24 at the time. 
And I lived in a town called Berkeley Heights, which even during my lifetime, when I was younger, they wouldn't allow black people to live in that town. The, the realtors actually got together, and if a black person, black family came into town, they took them to another place. And that place was called Plainfield, which was about 15 miles or so away from me. Plainfield was the black town. And most of the people in most of Plainfield, there was another section that was real nice. Again, I'm, I'm talking about the way it was way back in the 60s. That was known as, you know, the black place where black people lived. And it was poor and it was run down. And I got a call from a, a guy named Mr. Johnson um, who told me where he lived. And, he, and I said, I'll come down here tomorrow. And he says, do you know where I live? And I said, yeah, I know where you live. He knew that I was white. And I knew that he was black by his, the way he was talking. And he said, are you sure? He said, because I've called three other people and they won't come down here. And, and I, I asked him, you know, and this is kind of a way of establishing a friendliness. I said, can I ask you one question, Mr. Johnson? I said, is your, I don't care about the color of your skin, but is your money green? And he laughed and he said, yeah. I said, I'll be there tomorrow. And that started a, a um, uh, I want to call it a friendship, but an acquaintance with Mr. Johnson who was a black man who had the biggest house on the worst street in Plainfield. And, I, and it needed an awful lot of work. At that time, the, the contract, I'm still trying to remember, it was around 12000 bucks for a new roof, which was a lot of money. Um, but it was what, the, I mean, it wasn't overcharging. It was a big house and it needed a lot of work. And I said, and I gave him the price. We were sitting down having a cup of coffee. I still remember. I said, Mr. Johnson, I said, forgive me for saying this, and I hope you understand why I'm saying it. Just as a businessman, I said, why are you putting this much money in a house in this neighborhood? And he, he didn't take any offense. I still, he looked me right in the eye. He says, who else is going to show people how to live? He didn't say them. Who else is going to show people how to live if not me? And that started a, a, a friendship that lasted quite a few years. And he, he raised his family in this neighborhood, and I watched because I would every now and then I'd go down, and you know I might be working around the corner, and I'd say, "Mr. Johnson, you're home." I would have a... the, the neighborhood actually grew up around Mr. Johnson. I'm still, you know, how I bring the tears. I'm still feel emotional about what Mr. Johnson did, but he showed me something, and we talked a little bit about race, and, I'll, and maybe I'll tell you another story if it doesn't get too late. And he said, "If anybody ever calls me oppressed, he said, I'll bash him in the head." He said, I am not oppressed at all. He said, I've been able to do everything I wanted to do because I never bought in, his words were, I never bought into the bullshit. And he was right. Around the same time, I also, my father owned a golf course with nine other guys. He wasn't rich. He was just a semi-private course. And I used to caddy there on weekends. One of my, the guys that I caddied for was the black man, the vice president of the Singer Corporation, which at that time was one of the largest companies in the world. Singer sewing machines, but they made a lot of other things. And it was rare that a black man would even be able to attain that. But he, he liked the way I caddied, and I liked him, and he, so I became his, his private bag. When he came in on Sundays, if he was playing golf, I carried his bag. So we, again, we developed a kind of a friendship the other caddies, some of them used to call me the the end boy because I carried his bag. I didn't. I, he paid me eighty bucks a bag, which was huge. Right? It was when people were getting twenty bucks a bag, so I didn't care what. Not wasn't just the money. He was a real good guy, and he said the same thing. He said, "Don't ever think of me as oppressed." And here's a guy that back in the sixties. So what I'm saying is, even then there was a dismantling of the system. 
But like Jeff said, there's still pockets. If you go to Plainfield today, it's still mostly a black town. The neighborhoods have cleaned up quite a bit. And there's still people that hate other people because of the color of their skin. But there's no systemic racism. It's just not here. The racism that's present in localities, in Plainfield, in just another area near me, near Short Hills, which is a very wealthy section, is still there. But the difference is there's integration. There's more black people living in Shore Hills when there weren't any. There's many black people living in Berkeley Heights where when I was growing up there weren't any. And there's many white people living in Plainfield and Asian people and Hispanic people and people everywhere. The United States is still a true melting pot and yet we're being torn apart by racism. 85% of the millions of people that come to our country by choice, nobody's making them by choice, are people of color. If racism is so systemic, why the hell are they coming here? Because they know it's not. They know they're still going to come up against people that hate them because of the color of their skin or their nationality. It happens all the time. But I come across white people that hate me because I'm white. You know? I, I guess, John, I'd, I'd make a distinction between uh, assuming the victimization as an identity versus recognition of 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 realities in some areas. Uh, I agree and, with and that. Just because that exists doesn't mean you need to deny it, not to assume that you're a victim of it or to embrace that as your identity and use it as justification for feeling oppressed or not striving or not feeling as though you have an opportunity. That would be great, but I don't think people can get there, Jeff. I think because of the rhetoric, they can't. I mean, I, well, I, I, I agree. That's why I guess I don't, I don't know that I agree with the idea that you would announce that there is no systemic racism, I would probably approach it by saying, uh, even though that exists and we're all working to eliminate it, it doesn't mean that you assume the role of being a victim. Now, that some people are going to find that as oppositional, but I think it's closer to promoting... Um, a, a wiser view, if you will. Yeah, okay. I, 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 I would. I don't want to get into a lengthy argument about it, but for example, current laws that are being passed in uh, maybe even a majority of states, certainly quite a number, that restrict voting. That that's being introduced as laws on state levels. And you can say, well, they're just trying to redistrict according to political party. But coincidentally, for some reason, it also happens to in 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 case um, ethnic and racial identities, too. So, I, 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 again, I, we could make that art. We could go on for quite a while. But I, I guess I guess the heart of what I'm trying to get at is that it, it's and. and John, it's, it's also the problem with protests in general is that 
often by organizing, especially mass protests, you're really providing you're providing arguments that support their people who oppose you. Um, you're providing them with manifestations of their worst fears. In other words, yeah. they don't necessarily hear what you, the message you're trying to say. They just see thousands of people walking through the streets, uh, and they uh, and they may not look like them, and it scares the bejesus out of them. That's that's what happens. It's an emotional response. It's not intellectual. Nobody says, "Let me analyze the message that they're trying to send." Yeah. The message they hear and see is fear. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's a collective boiling the pot. You know, it just makes it worse. It always does. So, and again, yeah. not to get too deep into it, um, we could argue about the idea of voter rights being suppressed. I don't, I don't think that's happening. Um, but there. There's, there's, how do I say this? Everybody who wants to vote can vote in this country. The fact that you have to do a few things to do that, to me, is not suppressing or oppressing people. In other words, in order for me to, to vote, I got to show who I am. I got to prove who I am. I think that's, that's reasonable, especially in a country that's run by votes. Um, the fact that that might exclude whole groups of people is only because they don't register to vote. There's nothing to stop people from doing that. What you're, what, what I think you're talking about, Jeff, the idea of it, it's, it's uh, oppressing the vote or, or suppressing the vote in some way, is because it's not making it easier for people. We, we don't. It's easy enough. It doesn't have to be made easier. And the fact that we don't make it easier isn't suppressing the vote. It's just saying, yeah, we have a system. You either get a driver's license or some other form of identification, and you can vote. And Mr. Johnson voted in every election till the day he died. It didn't stop him. So, again, not to get into a deep argument about it, I don't know that we suppress the vote in any way here. Um, there's, there's always been games played with vote-taking, but you know, nothing like what's happened uh, recently. So, uh, And I agree with you, Jeff. I would never make that statement that racism doesn't exist, exist except in this format, which means racism only exists in people's minds. And that's the only place it can exist, So. I wish De De Devlin didn't leave, but yeah, is it, was there anything else you'd like to say, Jeff? No, no, I mean, there's plenty, but that, that I've taken enough time. Anytime, just let me know. We can have a conversation. Hello, Mateo. Hi, everybody. Uh, first of all, thank you, Dominique, to, to send me fuck off. <laughs> just joking. He told me a bad word in Italian, so... Uh, <laughs> Uh, so I think I don't know. Like I, I lost the trouble we are, but I, I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed the conversation. I think like probably my position by races can be like between John and Jeff. I think uh, I agree that like uh, uh, most of the time racism is equal victim victim victimization. So a lot of people they feel, oh look at me, I'm poor, I'm black, so I don't have a possibility. But then then on the other, I think on the other side, at least in the UK. You know, there is a data that will say, like, you know, black people that have less possibilities, they fail, and they go to school, all these kind of things. But, uh, you know, a lot of people in both sides, black and white, they feel like 
victim in Samoa. Yeah. This kind of thing. And on that note, like uh, talking about racism protests, like two weeks ago, I was like in an anti-racist protest in my city because uh, my wife told me, let's go, let's go to this. I said, okay, let's go. And, uh, and it was something fun for me. It was a very good uh, Buddhist field activity because uh, in the group there was uh, some Palestines supporter were just shouting uh, at the end they spit to like some uh, Israeli guy because it was just with a with a with a paper it's like anti-Semitism is racism they will start to fight each other you know in what is like a peaceful protest they fight each other it was like, ridiculous another guy they were selling not not giving for free selling the Ukraine flag uh, and I was thinking, why do you sell? Why are you making business during a protest? And then it's like, why just one side? Why there is only the Ukraine? So it was like a very interesting because, you know, you can point it out. Okay, this is not what probably Buddha likes or we should do. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's it. That's my only comment because I lost the track from the sutra. So. <laughs> well, yeah, I think if you're going to go to a protest, that's go with a well-concentrated mind. But we should always consider what... I mean, I always do. I, I shouldn't say it that way. I always consider just my presence is giving tacit approval for what other people are doing, just by giving the strength in numbers. So I'm always cautious about that. And that goes back to, you know, the Vietnam uh, protests. Um, yeah, in that, when I, when I was there, like, you know, I know that I say something provoking, but it wasn't purpose. I said, they got, well, I can buy your Ukrainian flag, but where is the Russian one? Yeah, it's a good point. And most people would say, well, what, you can't talk about Russia? Well, you know, there's there's millions of people living in Russia that deserve our understanding as well, including Putin. So, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. but this is, the, this is the road we go down when we start isolating people using terms that in reality, in awakened reality, simply do not exist. And one, one last thing about... Uh when you talk, when you mention about voting, still Buddhist things like I'm, a, I'm, I'm Italian Australian, so I'm like a double citizen. When I used to live in Australia, you know their law is very different, so it's compulsory to vote. Really? So everybody vote, and if you don't vote, you get five hundred dollars fine. But then if you think like it's it's another perception, it's very mental fabrication because officially everybody votes, but doesn't mean that you vote because you really believe in voting, in the system, yeah. in the party. A lot of people, they feel just forced, you know, they just do like a random sketch on their yeah. uh, voting just to show that. It's like a, uh, it's another mental fabrication of that, yeah. Sure. Yeah, I, I would see that it's, it's much easier to manipulate the vote when everybody has to vote. Because then yes. you just have to, I mean, not get too deep into political science, but then you just have to influence people that don't really care anyway so they're easy to to, to mislead and uh, but again those are all those are all structures that are rooted in a world that itself is rooted in ignorance and again it, it's uh we can always find an endless list of things that that aren't right that aren't fair the first noble truth says life isn't fair the, the, the statement that the buddha said as a consequence of having a human life there will be dukkha and it manifests in all kinds of different ways. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive as a society to better ourselves. But how are we going about doing it? Are we doing it out of, out of true understanding? Or are we, doing it to, are we fighting each other every step of the way? 
where people get hurt, people get killed, people get distracted by the cause, and we never get anywhere because we've been striving for equality for millions of years. It's not here. What should that tell us? Well, maybe life isn't supposed to be rooted in equity. It's not. Life isn't an equitable situation. It can't be. And there's always going to be people that are so-called at the bottom of the rung, supporting people at the top of the rung. Guess what? That's human life. It's yeah, just that's, human. Why, that's why I think Buddhist is so powerful, even political, because like a, the, the best things you can do is to detach from that. And in, uh, indirectly, you delegitimize yeah. everything. A part of that. So you, you do your, your own things, you sit, you meditate, you breathe. That is like, it's, it's very powerful. Somebody, somebody really think about that is really powerful. It's more powerful than, than voting, than, than, than protest. Yep. Yeah. yeah, and, and the, it, it's hard not to live in the world and not fall into that salvific mentality, meaning that I, I need to change something. And that's great, but let's change ourselves first because we get the, we get it's so easy for a mind rooted in ignorance to get caught up in what it can do to prove how good it is rather than just wake up. And so I think it's awful that there's people that, you know that there's a man and a woman with three small kids that can't feed their kids tonight. I, it's just and it's all over the world and it's always been like that. I think it's 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 awful. And to use a less charged word, it's unfortunate. I understand that I'm fortunate that I never had to go looking for a meal. My, my dad provided for me. I'm fortunate that I live in a situation where I can kind of take care of myself. But I also understand that the guy next door has got it much better than me. He's got a much faster wheelchair than I got. You know, so life. But I also noticed that the, that the lady, and this is, this is a true story, the lady that lives down the end of my lane, she's old, she can't get out anymore, and she needs assistance. Every now and then, I, I get out of my car and I go have a cup of tea with her. You know, I mean, I, I don't, I, I'm no, it doesn't make me a great person because I do it. I do it because there's a human being that I can do something about. And we talk about nonsense. She talks, actually, she, she talks in, in ways that I would find offensive. But I don't give a, I was going to say, I don't give a crap. What do I care? Her mind is not the mind that I would want, but she's a pleasant old lady. I have a cup of tea with once in a while. That's To me, that's much more important, and I've done more for humanity doing that than going and protesting a war because I've actually made it, made another person's life more pleasant simply by my presence. Not going there telling her, you know, lady, I just came from, you know, with this or that. Let's have a cup of tea. As Rodney King said, not to be so, so um, uh, minimize this too much, but Rodney King said, after the, after the police beat, beat the living hell out of him, almost beat him to death, he said, really, just, just pleading, why can't we all get along? And his words still reverberate in my mind. Here is a man who had every right to be angry at everybody and anything. Why can't we all get along? If I had one refrain after my 66 years, is why can't we all get along? Well, I know why. Because of greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. It's not because of systemic racism or, or misogyny or xenophobia. It's none of that. It's because I can't get along with myself that I create all these other disturbances in the world. I'm sorry, I'm going to tell you, you were going to say something. No, no, I was saying something stupid. I would say, like, 
we have a very good wise Italian saying we say it doesn't matter who you are it doesn't matter if you have a better job or money it's like you still sit on your ass that's right yeah that's right that's it that's it we're going to incorporate that into the Dhamma the the fifth noble truth you still got to sit on your ass the new sutra yeah the ass sutra (laughs) (laughs) I think we'll call it the Mateo sutra (laughs) <laughs> Thank you, my friend. Hello, Tom. Hi, John. Um, yeah, I'll just be very brief. Um, I guess just coming back to the racism thing, and I think, to be honest with you, I, yeah, I don't want to open up the whole new sort of the discussion again. Um, I, I totally understand where you're coming from in the sense that it's it's in the mind. And it shouldn't be an excuse for victim mentality and stuff like that. I just feel that there's a slippery slope there if we start talking, like presuming that the there's an even playing field for everyone in this world. Because I, just, I didn't say that though. I just have to interject. I never said that. But but I mean, suggesting there's no systemic, there's nothing systemic. Would at least that's how I understood it. It's like, well, there's nothing in. There's nothing out there like somebody born into the world that wouldn't, that, that you know, that, that, um, that would stop you from having equal opportunities. And so the, the, the example you gave of a person who lives in, you know, the, the person you did roofing project for. Um, yes, but, you know, he might have a story like, oh, I, you know, I made I made a success of my life because I didn't have the mindset of others. But I mean, who knows? That person may have, for whatever reason, had a slightly better opportunities than others as well right there could be other factors involved in that person having a better opportunity and of course making the most of it mm-hmm. so I, I i don't know it, it's just it's a it's a um um i i i, I just feel there's, there's so many ways in which you can sort of look at that and and maybe misinterpret it but i i mean from a perspective of does racism exist as a thing or is it just a construct in people's minds then yeah I, you know i totally understand that and i understand how people get too obsessed with labeling stuff and then taking on an identity of like i'm from this group so i must be oppressed because blah 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 i understand all of that i just i just think also we do have to recognize the fact that yeah for religion or color or whatever we just might have a slightly we might we don't all if we're running a hundred meters race together we don't all necessarily start at exactly the same point right yep. um, that's the first noble truth yeah i mean really the, the buddha couldn't have if using the metaphor he could have said we're all running a hundred yard dash but some people start at the 50 yard line that would be true but another way of saying yeah. it, as dukkha occurs, as a consequence of having a human life, there's going to be inequities. So is that not systemic, then? Could you not no, it's, it's, it's not systemic. Systemic, to me, it means that a system has been put in place, fabricated to do something. Life has always been unequal. There's always been people with a bigger hut with more coconuts in it. I... I I couldn't go to college. I mean, I, I'm a pretty smart guy. I couldn't go to college because when I was at that age, my father simply didn't have the money at the time. So I, should I? am I oppressed because I, I couldn't go to, to university when I was 18? I never looked yeah, at but, it that way. And, yeah, and, the, and the, the, point, the point, Tom, is 
life all over the globe isn't equal. It can't be. And all the, all the legislation, think about this. I'll think about my own country. We've been trying to legislate away poverty. There's more poor people now than ever. It doesn't work. All the, all the grand ideals that human beings have come up with, starting with religion and then, then boiling it down to legislation, has not worked. We're more divided as a planet now than we've ever been. All in the, in the name of equality. We can't keep pushing for it because it's not a factor of human life. I'm getting a little excited because it also relates directly to the Dhamma. Dukkha occurs. Yeah, but you you can also look at the the inequality in the world and say that there are very obvious trends of how inequality affects certain people a lot more, both globally and within countries. And that's not chance. It's not just pure chance that most white people, white male people are just, just naturally have a a more privileged, right? That's just a that's just a fact. If you look at the again, it's not an excuse to say that. But, you're but screwed why is why is that fact significant, Tom? I know it's it's a fact. Why is that significant? Instead of it's well, just what's occurred. I think when you look at poli- I mean, if you look at like policies of how countries could, you know, should be run or or whatever companies or systems or whatever. Yes. Then you can learn something from that and say, well, maybe there is. Um, you know, there is there is um, there is a need to address certain certain people or certain groups of people more than others. I don't think that's being controversial saying that. I mean, well, I think I'm that's not, just a, yeah, I'm not saying it's controversial either. Could be, but the within the framework of the Dharma, I'm not. Ta- I mean, one of the things that I'm most grateful for in finding in the Dharma is being disentangled with the world. So I can leave the world the way it is. I just bring it up in Dharma class because it's such a good <laughs> reference point. And in the Terragatha, the line that comes, what is to be is what is here. What we're experiencing right now is the evolution of humankind. This is how far we've come. And there certainly are people in the world that hate other people because of the color of their skins. There's many black people that hate me because I'm white. I don't give a, I don't care. There's many white people that hate black people. There's many Asians that hate, I don't care about it. That's nothing new. Duke occurs. And you can say that it's, it's rooted in inequality. I will say that history has proven that wrong. There's many people uh, grew up from absolute... The, one of the most famous Buddhist teachers in the world grew up in a hut in Vietnam that got bombed to shit. It didn't stop him, did it? So the idea that there is inequality in the world is a matter, is a matter of the first noble truth. It's not right or wrong. And to, and to look at it as... It's wrong that white people created a society that oppresses everyone is absolutely wrong. Because if you're going to say that, you better say white people saved the planet because white people became doctors and professors and astronauts and home builders and, and shipbuilders and, tra- and train conductors and meditation teachers. So when you say, when, again, not just you, Matt, but uh, Tom, when you say that white people created a system that oppresses everyone, it's just an outright, outright lie that you get caught up in the self-loathing. And so if we're going to talk about that, let's talk about all the, the Union Pacific Railroad, you know, U.S. Steel, Henry Ford, uh, George Washington. You know, I can go on and on and on. And I can also say Thurgood Marshall, Barack Obama. Kamala Harris, who I think is a terrible vice president, but a wonderful woman. 
it, 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 it's, it, it's, it's not systemic, it's, except that it's rooted in our ignorance. And so how are we going to address it? It's not right to look at the, look at the world one way, Tom. And I understand what you're saying, that the white system and the white this and the whites have been doing everything. The truth of the matter is, most in recent history, it's mostly white people organized that have made the greatest strides that have benefited everyone. I was just listening to a, to a, a British guy, I wish I could remember his name, who emigrated to the United States, instead just that, I just heard it on recently. And he said just that, that 85% of the, of the people that, that want to come into this country are people of color. Why? Because it's a land of opportunity. And he says that's how he sees it. And guess And he said, and guess who made that opportunity? Mostly white people. So there's a lot of bad white people and there's a lot of really good white people that have done a lot for every person, including every person of color. And I would say in this country, if it wasn't for the white people, we wouldn't be here. It might be still ruled by, by, by the Queen Mum, maybe, or some other country might have taken it over, but we would not have the great things that were offered from this country. The white people in this country have been supporting people all over the globe through their taxes and the gifts that we've given all over the world. The most generous country in the world throughout history, continuing to today, is white North America, white, white United States. So yeah, there's a lot of bad white people, but there's a lot of good white people. There's, there's 350 million out of the 360 million in this country that are supporting the world. So again, I, now I, I know I sound like I'm arguing, but it's just to make that point that we can talk about all the, the, the oppression of the white people, but we better talk about the things that the white people did that were good too. And, I, and I, now I know I'm probably coming across as a white supremacist because I'm taking a view that isn't completely anti-white. But it's, I think it's just seeing reality. So, we can all understand that this is not me, this is not mine. I didn't make this system. I am white in the system. I've had some benefits by being white, but I've also had, had things that held me back because I wasn't rich and white. I was just middle class and white. You know, those bastards that, that lived in short hills and not those poor people like me that had to live in Berkeley Heights. Those bastards that went to college and I couldn't. Those bastards that weren't six feet tall and I'm five seven. Where does it end, Tom? It doesn't end. So uh, to me, that type of thinking is rooted ultimately in self-loathing. And it's so, it, it sounds so good to all of us to jump on the negative because that's how we think about ourselves. It, it, it's a comfortable place for, for, to, for people like you and me to be, to say, yeah, we're awful people. We're not, Tom. People that are of color and people that are white, and people of all different shades have done awful things. And we're going to continue. There were times in human history when black people ruled the world, or at least large populations of it. Look at modern Egypt, or, or historical Egypt. You know, the time of the pyramids, they ruled the world. It was all black people. Was that a, a systemic racism against black people? No. It's just what occurred. We're, we're evolving in a way that maybe we're, we're going to overcome some of these things, some of these inequities, but we're not going to do it by insisting on equity when we're not ready for it. You know, the, when I first read um, 
uh, oh, I can't think of his, the, Karl Marx's book. I can't think of the name of it. When I was first exposed to communism, I was in my early 20s. This sounded like this is the greatest idea of all time. We just share everything. And it is a great idea, isn't it? If we could just get past this one thing about greed, aversion, and deluded thinking, we could all live in peace and harmony. So communism sounds like a great idea until you realize how is it, it's implemented. It's implemented by one controlling structure that oppresses everyone underneath it. So it's a nice idea. It's where most of the woke thinking is going. Marxism is, is great because it's all equal, but we're not ready for it. Every system that it, that it has been in, every time that it's been incorporated as a system, it's failed. It's, it's, only been, it's only been used to further oppress people. So we don't even know what to do. But we can accept reality. You know, maybe we'd be better off saying, yeah, there's inequality in the world. But white people have done this, this, and this. And black people have done this, this, and this. And Asians have done this. You know, we, we, let's start looking at the things that we've accomplished as a human race rather than the things that aren't working. Or maybe we can just develop a common peaceful mind and stop conf bringing conflict into the world by saying this needs to be different and that needs to be different. Because that's what brings conflict. I, I really believe it. It doesn't mean we shouldn't reach across the, the or go down the street and bring the bring our neighbor a cup of tea, or or if we know that there's a, a you know, I've done this in the, you know in the past, um, bring people some food when you know they're they're hungry. That's the way we end this stuff, not by legislation because it doesn't work. So when we see the inequities in the world, do something about it. Bring them a cup of tea or a ham sandwich, you know. Maybe buy people a, a, a tank of gas if you know that they can't get to work. I mean, to me, that, that's where charity should be. That's how we should end it. When you see a black person who's down on, who's down on himself because he feels oppressed, go put your hand around his shoulder. Sit him down and tell him, no, you're not. This is how you can get out of it. I mean, that, I, that, that, that's my suggestion anyway. Again, I, I apologize for going off on this subject, but I think it was so important that we talked about it and it came up in Dhamma class. So, what, Tom, I'd like to hear what you have to say, please. Um, <clears throat> I, won't, I will keep it really brief because it's getting a bit late now. Um, it's been a very long class. Um, so, um, honestly, there are aspects... Things you're saying I actually don't agree with, John. I've been okay. joining these classes for two years, and it's one of the very, very rare occasions when that happens. Um, I do get, I do get large parts of it, but there are certain parts I don't get. Oh, I don't. It's not I don't get. I just I do get. I get what you're saying. I just don't quite agree with it, and so I think probably better just to leave it there for now. Yep. Um, I agree. Um, but, but but what I would say, the thing that I really did take from... Because I, I also feel that these arguments kind of just end up going round and round. And, yeah. and, and what I love about the Dharma is how practical it is. Um, and so the thing that I actually took from earlier in the class, which is the thing that's most useful for me, really, was um, just this idea of um, serving both camps... And um, at the end of the day, we are, because this is something I've really, as I've grown in my practice, um, like 
always looking at i always used i used to get really into politics in i used to follow american politics right even though i couldn't vote there and i used to hate you know i really hated donald trump if i'll be absolutely honest i thought he was the most he was you know why i mean i guess the point why i don't i don't mean to prolong this but why i don't want to go into why i don't want to go into why but everything about the guy i hated if i'm honest but 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 the point i'm trying to make here is um that you it's it's opening up to the fact that yes he is deluded i think in many ways but 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 so is so is the we all are basically and so you have to realize that everybody's suffering everybody suffers everybody's um affected by the free marks of existence and 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 everybody's deluded including the people that think that they're right and the people that i would previously identify with so I really like this idea of serving both camps and saying, look, we're all deluded, including myself. <laughs> and, and um, you know, my role, I think, is to awaken myself and then um, see if I can be of service to people of both camps, right? Who, who because at the end of the day, we, we all need to awaken. It's not yeah. the, you know, the Democrats, the Republicans. It's not, it's not the Russians, the Ukrainians. We're sure. all basically ignorance right in 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 so many ways and so that's what i think i would like to focus on and just you know i don't i don't want to go into why i dislike these people or that because at the end of the day i've i've already gone beyond that i think and i you know when i said i had i say hatred i mean it's a bit of a strong word but you know a dislike of something it was it was a version and i I understand that now so i kind of go I, i look beyond it and it's understanding is what the Dharma has brought me right yeah. understanding as to why people are as they are yeah. um and so that's been really helpful and so that's what i would like to i think take from this class more than anything is that 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 um that that you know it all does come down to understanding and and understanding why we suffer individually understanding why others suffer and then being there for people just like you said the yeah. The person in the whatever, the, whether they be black, white, or something in the middle, wherever they are, whatever stage of life they're in, um, just being there for them, if if you can be, and if that if that um, you know um, um, if you have those opportunities, but prioritizing first your own, you know, quiet and peaceful mind. Okay. So yeah, that's all. I, that's all I have to say. I, um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. You said a lot, Tom, and, and uh, I'm, it, I, again, it's certainly okay to disagree with me. This is this was to me, it was a wonderful class, um, and I hope that you didn't get too agitated over the, the subject matter. But we should be able to talk about these things in Dhamma class. And again, I would not make that statement outside of class because to me, it only relates this way. Outside of this class, there certainly are people that believe in systemic racism, and it's not for me to challenge them on that belief. I don't, you know, that, that's for them. Um, as I read the Metta Sutta, related to what we did talk about, though, and uh, if we can really do this with everyone, if we can feed or, or, or serve both camps, this is all that we can do as Dharma practitioners, and sometimes that might be a little disappointing, but this is it. So, We'll finish with this, the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. And the Buddha says, this is, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties, 
including to save the world, and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class today. Peace. Thanks, John. See you all soon. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.